There was a time when it was pretty easy to distinguish between satire and real life. But at some point along the way, those lines got a little bit blurry. Because, well, we've all seen everything that's been happening lately. That's actually something I've thought about a lot. Is like you can no longer be more absurd than reality. You just have to be equally <laughs> as absurd as reality because there's no way to like top it, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're... Next, Charles Austin takes us behind the scenes of the comedy podcast, episode one. My name is Stuart, and this is Audience, a Castos original series, where we go behind the scenes of all kinds of different podcasts to uncover their creative process. But before we get to all the creative stuff, here's just a quick note for all the podcasters out there. Yes, creativity is the most important part of the process. And without it, your podcast or your show probably won't get very far. But you also need a support system, aka money. We can help you there. Cassos lets you monetize all of your episodes, even the old ones, with just a press of a button. There's no chasing sponsors, no extra editing work, none of the headache. You can even tap into your own support network. Your audience can directly support your podcast through one-time or recurring donations with Castos Commerce. For more information, check out the links in our show notes. Okay, let's get back into it. A long-storied tradition dating back tens of thousands of years is at risk of being lost. This tradition has its own tools, its own techniques, its own culture. It has its own legends, its own stories. Stories that have enthralled the world and spawned generation after generation of fans. What you're hearing right now is not real. It's all part of an imaginary world created by Charles Austin and his friends, Andrew Hudson and Alex Branson. Together, these three guys have produced hundreds of pilot episodes for podcasts that don't actually Man. exist. But dark times are ahead. New technologies make it harder and harder for us to practice our craft. Increased surveillance makes it more difficult for us to practice our art anonymously. The tides have shifted. It's getting harder to be a serial killer. Even if you get away with murdering someone, a dozen podcasts about you murdering them spawn. Times are the project tough. is called Episode 1. And each episode, as the title might imply, is a satirical first episode for a podcast that never made it. The creative throughline is that there is this foundation. The following is an archived podcast presented by the Branson and Hudson Foundation for Podcast Recovery. This podcast is entitled, We Are Serial Killers. It is the first and only episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode one. All of this started back in 2017, just as kind of a joke for three friends. But it quickly became clear that they were onto something. So I talked to Charles about how this all began and how over time, the show evolved from just sort of a funny thing that they did for fun to something that's still funny, but way bigger than he or anyone else ever imagined. Yeah, I, come up with the simplest premise that would allow us to do an infinite amount of different things, you know? It's a good thing we did that, because I think when you define a podcast too narrowly, it can be kind of a curse where, like, how do I do hundreds of episodes about this very narrow topic, you know? But luckily, we can just do whatever we want, so it stays exciting, you know? It almost seems more... Like, it, it was accidentally smart. We didn't intend it to be that good of an idea at the time, <laughs> but now it seems like, oh, that was a good idea. 
Uh, and you're like when when you define yourself too narrowly, you can kind of become a victim of your own success. Of if people do start listening, and then you're like, oh no, what am I going to do now? I've already exhausted this material, you know. The earliest episodes were basically just Andrew and Branson improving as perceived characters who started a podcast, like two guys who give out really bad dating advice, self-described finance gurus, and flat Earth conspiracists, while Charles simply worked behind the scenes. Well, it's funny because, okay, so when we started E1, Branson and Andrew were the ones who were going to be like on the show and I would just produce the audio, you know? So I mm -hmm. came into it because I did music and I was familiar with audio editing and stuff. And then as we started going, I just started being on more and more episodes until I was on all of them, basically. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we really came into it where all of us were interested in other creative projects more than podcasting of Branson was writing, I was doing music, etc. And then as the podcast started to take off, we just leaned more and more into it. Like as time went on, we were like, oh, this is worth putting time into because people want us to, you know. Now, some seven years later, they've racked up more than 300 episodes. And the show has evolved to include more of their friends. And these episodes run the gamut from the absurd, like a podcast that takes place at the pearly gates and St. Peter has to decide who gets to heaven and who doesn't. Or the more mundane where Joe Biden hosts a town hall at a Costco. Or another, where they take turns pretending to be Jack Nicholson, regaling listeners with stories from his life. Listening in on E1 almost feels like a masterclass in improv. I don't really like asking the question, how do you do it? But I'm going to ask you, how, how, how do you do it? Yeah, like you do have to be cognizant that there is an audience listening so you can't just do, be doing it purely for yourself but if you can say things that will make your friends laugh then there's a good chance that people listening will also laugh so it's like being aware that people want to be surprised and they want to hear something different that they wouldn't think of themselves while at the same time not being so um, paralyzed by that that you start trying to cater to the audience specifically like ultimately you need to be doing something that appeals to you personally or else you're not going to like doing it and you're going to get worse at doing it because you're not having fun doing it. Like I think with podcasting more than almost any other medium, people can tell when you're having fun and when you're not. And like, if you're not having fun, then the listener's not going to have fun. So I don't know. Like mostly you're thinking about what's funny to you and your friends, but there is some, at least like secondary consideration to this better be interesting enough for other people to take their time to listen to it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I heard like Trey Parker and Matt Stone, like talk about making South Park one time and they're like, yeah, we just try to make each other laugh. Like if, yeah, if they exactly. could make each other laugh or the guys in the, in the writer's room laugh, then an audience is probably going to like it. Yeah. You have to have an internal idea of what's funny. And then someone else out there probably shares enough of that idea, you know? Yeah. I mean, cause I think like, I mean, I've said this before on this show before, I, th I just think it's like creators, no matter wh whether it's like comedy or something else. I mean, if you're, if you're ultimately like entertaining yourself, then like there's a good chance like people out there are going to like it. Cause like I've always said like, I'm, I'm i uh, I'm not very unique. Like I have pretty simple tastes. And so like, if, if I like something, then hopefully other people will. And I just have to kind of make it in a way that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I guess the question becomes like, where do you find those people? But for us, the answer was like, Twitter, basically, <laughs> there was already this pre built in community of people who are using Twitter just to tell jokes and like jokes. And it was like this built in audience to begin. Like it, it was like from the beginning, we already had this built in audience because of Branson and Andrew's followings, especially, you know, like hmm. how they how did they gather such a following just by being on Twitter for long enough and just telling jokes on there long enough. Like 
both of them were on, like, I only started using Twitter around the time we started E1, but they were doing it at least from like, I don't know, 09 or 2010. So by the time we started, they had like seven or eight years worth of followers, you know? I remember that era of Twitter where there were people who just like were, everything started for them because of Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Like we definitely uh, fit like into Rob, that. Yeah. I mean, I think like Rob Delaney, who actually became like a pretty successful comedian, uh, thanks to Twitter. Uh, I think those days are, are gone. Yeah, even our, our days, I guess, were the next days, and even those seem to be gone now. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 a bygone era for for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, it feels like it is kind of maybe can still be tricky to think are are people gonna like this? And I think one of the cool things you guys have done with your show is there's an infinite amount of possibilities. Like you haven't boxed yourself in. Because a lot of people are like, oh, well, my podcast has to be this because, you know, that's kind of that's how we framed it early on. You guys have kind of built this infinite world of possibilities, it feels like. Yeah, you definitely don't want to constrain yourself like especially like, because podcasting is so much like radio where there's just this massive demand for like a large amount of content and you can't slow down really if you want people to keep listening. It needs to be something that you are comfortable doing like ad nauseum or else you're going to like resent yourself for starting it or something. I want to go back to the improving thing a little bit because I think what's like so fun about listening to you guys is A, you're really good at it. And, and B, it's very, very rare that like anybody breaks character. Like you can kind of hear some cracks in your voices a little bit or some background laughter. But for the most part, like you guys are surprisingly committed to the role. For that hour and a half or however long you're recording but it happens you guys get what you guys get each other every now and again what are like what what can branson and andrew do that's going to make you laugh um i don't know it's it's hard to say now because it changes over time where like i think earlier on it was easier to make each other break but now we've done so many that we like we kind of see things coming so especially over time it's better to have like or like guests are more capable of surprising us than we are at surprising each other at this point but there's still like, I don't know. We'll still find ways to do it. Uh, it's kind of right now. It's making me think of like the 30 rock episode where Tracy Morgan realizes that people think it's funny when he breaks. So he tries to start breaking in every single sketch. And I think that's kind of, I can relate to that because the audience always likes it when we break, but if we started doing it on purpose, it would be bad. You know, so yeah. it has to be genuine. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, some of the best SNL moments are when, when people start losing it like you know i know some people you know adam sandler can never do a scene with chris farley yeah without yeah losing it and those are some of the best moments the key is that it just has to be genuine or else it's going to be like transparently you can tell when it like it's just like we were saying earlier of like people can tell when you're not having fun in a podcast they can also tell when you're like trying to provoke that too aggressively you know mm, yeah i never thought of it that way you know i i think one of the best examples of your ability to improv is the Jack Nicholson episode. Uh, I mean, like right out of the gate, you're just Jack Nicholson telling this kind of crazy story. I think every group of friends kind of has that thing they all do that you can always pull out, like when you're when you're trying to just have fun. But uh, has has Jack Nicholson always been someone you guys have been, uh, I guess, infatuated or enamored by? I mean, like uh, the Nicholson one and the Joe Biden one. A lot of those ones where it's just like the same thing going around and around again usually happens like in person for us of like, if we're just going somewhere and doing something, we'll just be repeating those kind of lines to each other again and again. And then eventually we'll be like, Oh, this should be an episode because it's something we like enough. So it stems from that. And with Jack Nicholson in particular, it's just like watching YouTube videos of him. There's like, there's one that probably a lot of people know. that's like a famous one on YouTube where he's just talking about like, 
you know, we used to hang out at a coffee shop called Poopies on the Strip. And he seems unaware of the fact that Poopies is a very funny name for a coffee shop. Uh, I think that one in particular is like what made us want to do that impression, you know? <laughs> yeah. Jack Nicholson's one of those guys. He's a little bit like Harrison Ford to me. Like he's funny without like really ever trying to be like Harrison Ford to me is just hilarious. And he's not a comedic actor necessarily, but he'll he'll never fail to make me laugh sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to play a clip from the Jack Nicholson episode. Uh, and then maybe afterwards we can talk a little more shop about it. But let's cue this up here. So I'm in the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile with Elliot Gould going about 115 down the PCH. And we're flying cross-faded off reefer, all kinds of crazy drinks we were making on the ride down. And we're slamming it pedal to the metal. Come around the bend. State trooper clocks us, throws on the lights, pulls us over. Elliot didn't want to stop, but I said, look, we got about four pounds of weed in this thing. We got to pull over. Elliot pulls on over. The cop says, Hey, aren't you Elliot Gould? Aren't you Jack Nicholson? We say, no, we're the zombies. Who do you think we are? He laughs and asks for our autograph. Didn't even have to show him our identification. He knew our faces. But I do find it curious. He didn't once ask us about the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Turns out the thing was hot. Elliot had stolen it. He told me outright he bought it. But this thing had been outside our hotel for a few days, and no one was driving it, so Elliot said it was lonely. So let's take it for a spin. Well, day later, we're going back to Malibu, and while we're driving in this Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, we see the same cop drive by us. He waves at us. We wave back. Absolutely shit-faced. And you know what? After that, I don't know what happened to the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. I can't even remember what happened to Elliot Gould. But that was my friend, and I loved him. He was a great man. A great man. <laughs> that, that's, was that, a, that's Andrew there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He's, I yeah. think he's the best at like coming up with a lot of specificity out of nowhere. Like He can just summon so many like proper nouns and specific details just like conjure them out of thin air in quick succession in a way that creates just a very memorable story, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things. It's obviously absurd, but like if Jack Nicholson were in that situation, it does kind of feel like how he would tell that story. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I think the same with Joe Biden, obviously like realistically, would he hold a town hall at a Costco? You know, probably not. But even if he did, like, I think at this point, our ability to be shocked by like anything I think has been like, like, I, I don't know. I just don't think that threshold exists anymore. Yeah, I think agreed. at this point, yeah. Joe Biden doing a town hall in a Costco. Like if, if you saw that headline headline, you would just kind of be like, yeah, that's actually something <laughs> like I've a, thought that, about that a tracks. lot is like, you can no longer be more absurd than reality. You just have to be equally <laughs> as absurd as reality because there's no way to like top it, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're, it, it can be exhausting. I think to live in like these kind of like, historic times like it i don't know it just at some point everything just kind of quit making sense i think we're we're pretty aware of this fact that like a lot of people who listen to our show listen to a lot of like political podcasts rather than comedy podcasts because of our association with like chapo trap house and shows like that so i think that it's sort of deliberate that we want to be an outlet for like catharsis and escape from that rather than just more of that so when we do political things like the biden one it needs to be absurd rather than 
expressly political, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think there is something kind of funny, though, about it. I mean, it seems it sounds almost counterintuitive. If you, if you don't think about it for very long, like it seems kind of counterintuitive, a Biden impression that's kind of apolitical. But in some ways, that's kind of just as funny. Like, uh, what's his face? James Austin Johnson, who used to do those Trump yeah, videos. Exactly. And, and of course, now he's on SNL. I even think like to those like earlier episodes you were doing, like Aphrodite's Labyrinth and the Paradigm Shift, where no, it's not really necessarily political. But it, I think it does say something about the male ego. Like, I mean, it's it's still kind of poignant in a, in a weird kind of way. Yeah, there's like a latent point of view in the episode. Like the choice to make fun of that type of thing does have a latent point of view, but we just don't want to make it too obvious and make sure it's funny more than anything, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think like you're, you're kind of hitting on something there with like something not being obvious. I think a lot about like Tim Heidecker doing Mr. America, which of course was kind of built off. That's its own like sort of anthology, of course, which is built off of uh, on uh, the electrics. Yeah, on that. cinema at the cinema, and I mean, but that's a that's a great example too because I mean it, it sort of plays up these kind of two like the two sides maybe of the male ego. Like there's kind of like the alpha male wannabe guy that he plays, but then there's like that flip side, like the sort of sensitive like soft boy like liberal type of guy yeah, that, yeah that's that's equally as contrived and equally as self-absorbed yeah I it's think. fun to make fun of uh, all of that at the end of the day <laughs> oh yeah 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 one thing i'll say about episode one and for anyone out there who, who hasn't found it yet if you've ever like made a podcast or have thought about making one like these guys have probably already poked fun at you a little bit and i think that's good i think we need to be able to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously even if we do even if like the the world of the audio medium is like very important because it is very important to me, I think it is good to be able to laugh at it too. Because yeah, why absolutely. Not? <laughs> I think it's important to make fun of the things that you like too. Like obviously, we make fun of plenty of things we don't like, but you need mm. to be willing to find humor in the things that you think are cool and think about like, oh, what? Why do the things that I like actually suck too? You know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. Is there an art to, to satire too? Because I think I'll tell you my opinion about it and maybe you agree or don't. But I always feel like if you're going to satire something, then there has to be an underlying respect for it. Like I think of like uh, Seth MacFarlane on Family Guy making that like shot for shot remake of Star Wars. Yeah. Like yeah. I think it's very clear he respects that franchise, but also kind of skewers it at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I guess it depends on the subject matter. I feel like there's a whole range of things like you can make fun of things that you hate or things that you love as long as it doesn't become about you and your opinion on it entirely. It's like like you were saying how like there is like this latent point of view that you can see that we we don't like these kind of like alpha male guys. Like there is like a, a, a implicit judgment of of them. But hopefully it's still funny on top of that rather than being like I'm trying to make a point about this, you know? Like I think it's too especially on the internet it's just so easy to make the same points about the same political topics again and again ad nauseum. And if you're on social media enough, you've already seen all that play out so many times. And like, you just have to come with, even if you're sort of implicitly making a point about something, it just needs to have something else there or else it's not substantive enough, I guess, as like entertainment, you know? You guys eventually started transitioning into doing more scripted shows. Uh, at what point, like in the process, did that start happening? It was like over episode 100, so probably like two to three years into doing the show. It, there was like a natural progression, though, of like early on, we started doing things that were more and more involved, where like we did one that was like an hour of commercials, and we did like a baseball game with like Foley and all that, and it just sort of. We realized pretty early on that we were sort of recreating like 1920s radio plays 
And the logical conclusion of that was just putting more and more and more effort into them until they just became like audio movies, essentially, you know? I listened recently to Pixar Sodas. Yeah. Which my wife was listening to part of that with me and she was like, actually, they might be onto something here. Like this could. (laughs) Yeah. I love that one. Like that episode was so like uh, rejuvenating to me in particular because it's like it was a tough challenge to make something that's both bad and good at the same time. Like some of the jokes are just deliberately terrible and we do them like seven times each. But then it needs to also be coherent and have like a structure to it and have real actual funny jokes to keep you going, you know? It's a really good one. The, the love story there with Coke and Pepsi yeah. is just kind of a, the Capulets and the Montagues, right? Yeah, it's just funny to skewer sort of like corporate culture too of like, it's like the holy grail for any brand is to get people invested in their stupid product as if it is a human entity, you know? And doing that with Coke and Pepsi is just so dumb, like rival brands falling in love. Like that's, those companies actually wish people would watch that garbage movie, you know? <laughs> oh, probably. That, that'd be like the ultimate product placement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Pepsi, I was wondering, maybe sometime, you know sodas love being around pizza. Maybe sometime we can hang out by the... Suddenly, Coke becomes aware of his surroundings. They're in the bad part of the Circle K. Lotto tickets, scratchers, cigarettes, you name it. The place is a cesspool of temptation and debauchery. Hey, baby, why don't you scratch me? You could win a lot of money off of me. Come on. Just ignore them. I'm a cigarette. Hey, Coke, say hi to your mom for me. Do you know that guy? Just secondhand. Why don't you two bring those tabs over here and scratch me up and down? Oh, yeah. Not quite a nickel, but you'll do. (laughs) Please. A soda only pops their tab once, and I'm saving mine for the right guy. Humans can't hear the sounds that scratchers make when they get scratched, but we can. Look, someone's scratching one now. Listen. Oh, 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 yeah, oh. It's crazy, but it's true. I don't know why, though. I don't know why it has to be like that, but it does. Coke, look out! (laughs) Watch out, I'm a beer. Hey, Pepsi, what do you say we pour ourselves into a glass? We can make a nasty drink together. Ew, you're a creep. Why don't you use some of your hops and jump out of here? You're drunk. Of course I'm drunk, I'm beer! Come on, let's see if we can fit into the same koozie. (laughs) She said no, beer. I know you're used to getting a buzz on, but this time, I think you should buzz off. You know, you guys really kind of run the gamut from the minutia to the absurd. I mean, I think like some of those episodes, I think especially those earlier ones, I think like the paradigm shift where you're, you're kind of mimicking these kind of, I don't know, like finance guru, tech bro type guys. I mean, the humor is really in the minutia because, I mean, you guys really just <laughs> solid, solid hour. You guys just kind of going back and these ridiculous characters you've contrived. Yeah, but- yeah. Kind of like from you bringing up Tim Heidecker earlier, I think that the ones that are more subtle are kind of more in that like on cinema vein where like the characters aren't aware that they are the joke, you know, like the characters themselves are playing it straight, but the actors know that the characters are buffoons, you know, like that's that's kind of like the way you... I don't know, approach that. I think so like other things that like have kind of evolved, like you guys occasionally do like live performances and and appearances. Yeah. I think this is like the first year that we haven't done any in a very long time, but I think next year we'll get back into it a bit. What was it like to open for Wolf Parade? It was fun. Like it was interesting because opening for a band like uh, as a comedy group, obviously 
poses a challenge of just like are people interested in hearing us and i think broadly speaking the answer in la was yes and the answer in san francisco was eh kind of we're like uh it also, I don't know, I feel like I learned a lot from that experience because we'd never done something like that. I know Dan from Wolf Parade had told me that they'd had Neil Hamburger open for them before. So it's like he's used to kind of incorporating comedy into an otherwise serious live music, you know, world. Um, so that was kind of heartening to me that he was like, oh, you guys will you guys will do a good job. Like, just, just roll with it. And I feel like we learned a lot because like it, it almost, the amount that people were invested is kind of uh, informed by like the shape of the venue itself. Almost interestingly, like in LA, uh, the Troubadours, like it's wide and it's narrow and it's very like intimate, even though it's, it's like at least like 500 or something capacity, but it's like, there's still like this, I don't know the way that it's shaped is sort of more intimate. And I feel like everyone felt like they had to pay attention to us and not to not be like rude or whatever. And then the venue in San Francisco, it was also an interesting challenge that it was just more like of like a sort of, longer haul and i feel like it gave people more ability to tune us out they weren't tuning us out any more than they would tune out an opening band but it's just bands are so much louder that when you're doing that with comedy it it takes perseverance to just like stay focused but i think it was like a a worthwhile challenge and like i enjoyed doing it how how did how did it come about um just because we're friends with them like uh dan was maybe one of the first like interesting artists who started listening to our show early on Um, and since me and Andrew already liked Wolf Parade and we're like, oh, Wolf Parade's listened to our show. That's so cool. So then the next time they were in town, we hung out and we just became friends through that. And that's kind of how been, how the whole thing's been for us is like, we started off only having our friends on the show. And to this day, we're still only having our friends. We've just made uh, more interesting friends, you know, (laughs) as time goes on. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it must be pretty interesting because obviously like you, Andrew and, and Branson have such, such a good dynamic, but you bring other guys into it. I think mean, I think the Jack Nicholson episode was just kind of keep using that example. You you bring people in, and, and it's just like people don't miss a beat. It seems like yeah, yeah. It's like that's why it's valuable to do episodes with people we know. I mean, occasionally we'll bring on people we're like aware of who we aren't friends with, but we don't move too far outside of our circle because we just know how people are gonna react, and we learn what their dynamic is, and then try to put the ball in their court to do a good job. You know. Like give them topics that they're good at riffing on. And I don't know. And it's helpful. I guess getting back to the Wolf Parade thing, it's helpful having made friends who do music or streaming or like you know various different things. Cause there's certain dynamics that like interpersonal dynamics that overlap of like doing a podcast with the same three people for a long time is very similar to being in a band with the same three or four people for a long time where you have to learn how to get along with each other in a way that's sustainable. Like it's everyone's lives are going to be so much better if you actually communicate and get along well rather than like secretly hate each other and shit how are you guys navigating some of those dynamics because i mean you're you've you've played in a band before too and so creative differences happen yeah i think that like ultimately certain things need to be more democratic and certain things need to be delegated to whoever's most reliable at doing them i guess or like in my i'm i'm most willing to do the most boring things of like i'll stay on top of just keeping track of finances or whatever you know like if all three of us were doing that, it would be annoying because it's like too many cooks in the kitchen. So there's certain things that just need to be delegated, but then on the creative side, everyone's ideas need to be heard. And the fact that we create so much material means that if any of the three of us are serious about an idea, we can eventually force it to happen because there's going to be a week where we need an idea. And it's like, I have one. Uh (laughs) Yeah. 
Are there any like ideas that don't make the cut? Which seems kind of meta because it's like it's <laughs> ideas that didn't make the cut for yeah, for things that don't for, make the for, cut, yeah. for, for shows that never really made the cut. I guess I think that any premise can work. It's just that the specifics need to be tweaked because sometimes we'll have like a vague premise that's too vague. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like I don't know. I guess you just like any like I don't know uh, guys who are talking about gambling or whatever. It's like. We could probably do five different gambling episodes, but what's the specific angle of like, is this guy's in a, is this like poker players? Is this guys who are like racetrack guys? Is this uh, sports gambling? Like you could do each of those as different episodes, but if you just try to bring gambling to the table, it's like, that's not enough. How do we talk about that for an hour? But there's actually like 10 different ways to talk about it for an hour. It's just like, you got to be specific and decide, you know? Even if it is being done tongue in cheek and kind of sarcastically, what is it like to embody a different character every time i don't know it's like especially since we've done so many each of us also have the probably me the most out of the three of us have the habit of just bringing in certain parts of ourselves into each character anyway like certain personality traits recur among all these different people you know <laughs> or like they all happen to use the same catchphrase even though they're like one of them are like wizards and then one of them are just like football players or whatever <laughs> i think that yeah you find what's funny about that subject but then also you bring it into your own wheelhouse so you know that you're going to have material. I, I think that's why I like shows like The Great a lot, where it's just kind of like they're playing these historical characters, but they're just kind of playing it like a very modern human being. I think. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I think especially if we have three of us and only one person's doing that, that works pretty well sometimes. <laughs> kind of as like a, like a comedic foil. And I also just love those. like dumb guy ideas about the past or about things they don't understand. Like something that's really funny to me is someone who thinks that Shakespeare had dragons in all his plays, you know, things like that. Like it kind of vaguely makes sense, right? Like medieval, Oh, medieval times there's dragons and stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have any other projects going on? Didn't you, uh, didn't you, uh, aren't you working on like a new podcast too? Yeah, I do a few things. Uh, I have like a side podcast called fortune kit where we just talk about music Usually we're looking for absurd things with music, like just finding like weird guys in their 80s who make songs on YouTube that no one listens to. But like it's like their weird like passion project, you know, stuff like that. Uh, or we read we read like Tommy Lee's autobiography, you know, just we, we try to do weird things related to music for that show. And then I have a very slow like a podcast I slowly work on. that's very it's like fully scripted called Pretty Dim Wonder. That's just kind of like a podcast sitcom. That's just like a narrative plot driven thing, you know. But that one just takes so much time and I'm doing so much for E1 that it happens very slowly. But Yeah, you're, you're a musician too. Can you talk a little bit about your the music you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a rock band called Solips and then I also do music for E1. Kind of like I was saying at the beginning that we just incorporate whatever we like doing into E1 anyway. And I think it's been very liberating. Like doing music for E1 has been surprisingly helpful for me because it like frees me up to realize that it's fun to just dabble in every kind of genre and try to push out into things I wouldn't normally do. Uh, especially going forward, we just have ideas to do a lot of types of music we haven't done before and incorporate those into either scripts or improv episodes. Are you writing music, like specific pieces of music for an episode, or are you doing that like retrospectively, like listening to an episode and being like, all right, here's where, here's where a track might fit. It's a pet, like for, for like a pretty dim wonder that I was talking about, I'm doing all the music sort of as it goes along, like scene by scene, like adding songs that are needed as it goes. And that takes so much more effort that I've started or like the, our friends electric scripted E1, all that music is stuff that I made for pretty dim wonder that I just reused for E1 because, you know, for the interest of saving myself time. <laughs> um, but then other times, like 
when we did like a scripted James Bond episode, uh, it was called Roger Me Never. And it's like, let's just make a James Bond movie, just steal the intellectual property wholesale. So all that music is just stolen <laughs> from James Bond soundtracks, you know? <laughs> it depends on the specific episode, you know? We'll, we'll just call it fair use, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, my thought is like, you know, as an independent creator, corporations are always trying to make you work for exposure. So anytime I can make like the Beatles work for exposure or Disney work for exposure, I feel like that's my right back to them, you know? <laughs> Legally, they may be in the right, but I think ethically I've got a case, you know? I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll carry that mantle for you. It's pretty easy to come up with ideas for a podcast, but actually making the thing is a different animal altogether. So why not just come up with a whole bunch of ridiculous ideas that wouldn't work if they were real, but somehow do because they're fake? Maybe that's not the best description of E1, but whatever they're doing is working, and it's hilarious. Underneath the satire and not-so-subtle critique of the world of podcasting are a group of really talented creators and close friends who have built their own world and a dedicated following. You can find full episodes of E1 at e1pod.com, where you can also join their Patreon for more exclusive stuff. It also streams anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to hear more of the music that Charles makes, his band Solops is on YouTube, Spotify, Bandcamp, and all the other usual places. Here's a preview of their song, Who Knows, which was recorded at Million Studios in Chicago. Now it's time for our podcasting tip, where our guests bestow some wisdom on the rest of us. Hi, I'm Charles Austin from E1, and my podcasting tip would be, I guess if you're on the first episode of the show, you should imagine it at like the hundredth episode of, is this still something that I can keep expanding upon? Like, I think it's pretty easy to do four, five, six episodes about any one subject if you're passionate about it. But you don't want to become a victim of your own success where if people start listening by episode 40, episode 50, if you can't have the same amount of passion you had for it on the first episode, you're going to paint yourself into a corner. So it's important to choose a topic that is narrow enough to be meaningful to you, but broad enough that you can expand upon it in lots of different ways over time without becoming miserable in the process. I love it. That's awesome. Audience is a Castos original series. Our founder and executive producer is Craig Hewitt. Production assistance is provided by Esel Brill, Jocelyn DeVore, and Marnie Hills. Our website and logo design is courtesy of Francois Brill, our head of product here at Castos. All music comes from the Storyblocks library. This episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. Check out audiencepodcast.fm for more episodes or just search for it anywhere you get your podcasts. Next time on Audience, I talk to Chris Ledane from The Parlor Room, a podcast from the Harvard School of Business. All I cared about growing up was music, painting, and baseball. You know, like that was all I cared about. So business was pretty far away from where I was going as I got older. I started to realize how interesting it truly is just to think about business as a whole and how it applies to other parts of life. But I'm coming in, at least to this podcast, as 
kind of like the uh, the dumb guy in the corner of the room. If I'm trying to think of a nicer way to say it, but I'm the person asking the questions that might seem obvious to some people who really know this stuff inside and out. But to me, it's the foundational question. It's the starting question. Like, well, why would that happen?